death of an animal or over a tragic episode in a novel. As he depicted the hero in one of his earliest stories, though the attributes of the lion were there, was there wanting a certain softness, the hint of womanliness which bespoke the emotional nature? Perhaps the famous portrait artist Arnold Genthe described him most accurately. Jack London had a poignantly sensitive face. His were the eyes of a dreamer, and there was an almost feminine wistfulness about him. And yet, at the same time, he gave the feeling of a terrible and unconquerable physical force. Granting the large and obvious personal faults to which Anna Strunsky-Walling alluded, the unembellished facts of London's career are the stuff that dreams and legends are made of more fabulous than anything Horatio Alger ever imagined. Here was an infant born out of wedlock into near poverty, one whose paternity has never been definitely established. Here was the child who spent his precious boyhood years delivering newspapers, hauling ice, and setting up pins in bowling alleys to augment the family's meager income. Here was the mere youth forced to become a factory work-beast, apparently condemned, like thousands of other poor unfortunates in his social class, either to die an early death from overwork, malnutrition, and disease, or, if he deserted his post at the machines, to spend what miserable life that was left in him wandering the underworld among the social degenerates and misfits known as the submerged tenth. Yet by means of luck, pluck, and sheer determination, undergirded by a rare genius, he succeeded in escaping the pit, transforming himself into Prince of the Oyster Pirates, and a man among men at the age of fifteen. Able-bodied seaman and prize-winning author at seventeen, recruit in General Kelly's Industrial Army, also hobo and convict, at eighteen, notorious boy socialist of Oakland at twenty, Klondike Argonaut at twenty-one, the American Kipling at twenty-four, internationally acclaimed author of The Call of the Wild at twenty-seven, Hearst War Correspondent at twenty-eight, celebrated lecturer and first president of the Intercollegiate Socialist Society at twenty-nine, world traveler on his famous snark at thirty-one, model farmer at thirty-four, blue-ribbon stock breeder and rancher at thirty-eight, and the producer of more than fifty books, several of which have achieved the status of world classics, before his death at forty. The sum total of these achievements underscores Alfred Kazin's comment that the greatest story Jack London ever wrote was the story he lived. London's story is quintessentially American. It is difficult to imagine his meteoric rise from rags to riches in a different setting, or in a different time in American history. E. L. Doctorow remarks that London leapt on the history of his times like a man on the back of a horse. He rode this horse from his childhood to his death. Even while he was outraged by the inequities and injustices in the American socio-economic system, 
and even though his apparent indictment of the myth might seem to be the major theme in his quasi-autobiographical novel, Martin Eden, as a boy he had already bought wholeheartedly into the dream of success. His idiosyncratic political attitude, a peculiar amalgamation of socialism and individualism, was a spin-off of this mythology. The literary historian Kenneth S. Lynn has suggested that London's conversion to socialism had more to do with rising in the world than with world revolution. I will elaborate London's rise in the world in the chapters that follow. Before that, however, I'd like to rehearse a few details of my personal connection with Jack London, whose call I first heard more than seventy years ago as a boy in a one-story red-brick schoolhouse nestled amid clean-smelling clusters of pines and oaks in the heart of the Kayamishi Mountains of southeastern Oklahoma. Ours was a consolidated school.